You're listening to the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute's Natural Podcast, a podcast about natural products and the science and scientists of secondary metabolism. Hey again, this is Dan. You're listening to the second episode of the Natural Podcast. This is part two of our primer episode, so if you ended up here somehow without having listened to the first part, you might be a little lost, and uh, I'd suggest you go back and check the first episode out. This one continues the introductory conversation between myself and Allison, and we continue with the basic ideas of the science of natural products, and we dive into the very early history of the field. If you continue on in the next episode, you'll hear us talk about the modern history of natural products and the state of the field today. So not as much of a preamble this time, let's jump right in. So secondary metabolites, um, I, I kind of in, inferred uh, it, through the stories. I told you about geosmin, which is a bacterial secondary metabolite, and ergot alkaloids come from fungi and taxol from plants. Plants, fungi, bacteria, archaea, they all have secondary metabolism. They all have very uh, developed secondary metabolism pathways. Um, not every organism uh, at least has something that's maybe obvious or notab- notable. Uh, we are still uh, in not an early stage. I think we can identify most secondary metabolism pathways now, but there are still almost certainly unusual things that we don't recognize because the only way to find things is by, by comparison. And we'll talk about that when we talk about molecular biology. But um, yeah, so secondary metabolism is is throughout nature, except maybe for uh, animals and humans, uh, it, not as much. Um, you know, we have this uh, human-centric view of biology normally, and so the the things that we have, we don't wouldn't consider to be secondary metabolites. Um, you know, uh, eye color is a pigment, right? But we mm-hmm. don't necessarily consider that a secondary metabolite because it's it's something that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, animals that are known to be sources of secondary metabolites, like um, sponges were a really common source for people to try to find new medicines for a long time. Mm. But we've know, we know now that most of those pathways come from bacteria that actually live within, say, the sponges or, or other things. Or, um, we know lots more about microbiomes and symbionts that live with other organisms, and often it's the, the bacteria or or whatever that lives with them that, that produces those. So, mm. so it's not a hard and fast rule, but generally animals do not have secondary metabolism yeah. that, that we really recognize. Right. And I tend to think of microbes as being able to secrete a lot more things mm-hmm. than people do. <laughs> Although, well. I, you know, I, I don't study people, so maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because I think, is, is that a fair way to think about secondary metabolites as well as is, is these... Well, I guess it's not always because it could be something that's, it could be a molecule that's embedded in their, um, call that, I, I want to say like lipid bilayer, you know, in mm-hmm. the yeah, skin of the cell. It, it depends on lifestyle. So there are lots of different organisms that, that produce secondary metabolites for whatever reason. And so um, one of the ways I used to think about it when I was teaching is, um, Bacteria might have different lifestyles. There, there are the kinds of bacteria that maybe uh, grow in one place and sort of stay there, and then you know they will have to create an environment that's good for them to grow in. Uh, mm-hmm. They might have enough nutrients, but they might want to protect those nutrients with the antibiotics. They might need to secrete, say, diaphores to pick up uh, metals and bring them back into their cell. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
Yeah. And then there are other bacteria that uh, maybe are more motile and, and move around and um, don't, don't sort of set up shop in one place. And so those, those guys that move around or swarm, um, they might be using secondary metabolites to uh, produce chemicals that would give them the ability to talk to one another, to, to mm-hmm. sort of know if, if, they're, they're, uh, they're, if their neighbors had already been to, to a location or something mm-hmm. by, by leaving sort of a chemical trail the same way that like ants do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's also common as well. And uh, yeah, so it really just depends on lifestyle. Okay. It's such a dynamic part of their lives, it uh, sounds like. Literally, yeah. I mean, you might be producing things at different stages of growth or, or different uh, signals from the environment uh, might, might cause you to start producing things, yeah. It's, it sounds like it's kind of like our endocrine system or our hor- hormones in a way, too. Like, like in a maybe an anal- analogous way, uh, we produce different chemicals in different situations. Um, it's... We, we tend to keep them all inside, but <laughs> in fact, you're a, you're a little bit more giving. Uh. All right. So I think we've, we've covered a little bit about why they're important. But um, one of the things I did want to make sure that I emphasize is that um, the natural products field, or secondary metabolism, has been um, dominated but driven by uh, drug discovery. Uh, mm. We know that many natural product molecules uh, are useful to humans. We we really like antibiotics. We like um, mm-hmm. uh, molecules like caffeine uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that do things for us that are that are positive. And so, drug discovery has been a major driver for for natural product biosynthesis. And probably a lot of the people and the scientists that we talk to will have that that goal. That's not as much our goal here at the JGI. We are not uh, a medicinally focused uh, organization. Um, mm-hmm. And so what we do more exploration of is the use of secondary metabolism uh, in the environment and sort of understanding, like we've talked about how bacteria or other organisms communicate and how and why secondary metabolites are being produced in, in the environment for ecological reasons. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example? Uh, okay, so here's an example. One of the organisms that I studied in the past were called uh, were a group of bacteria called the Frankia, and so the, mm. the Frankia are bacteria that live in the root nodules of plants. Mm. Uh, and these guys were were sequenced, and sort of you can see that different um, Frankia uh, have different sized genomes depending on what kinds of plants and what kinds of environments they live in. Uh, mm-hmm. But it turns out they have a lot of secondary metabolism pathways. Um, and they use many of these pathways to communicate with other Frankia and probably other bacteria that also oh. live in the root nodules. Okay. Uh, and it provides, uh, the, the plant provides like a little house for them to mm-hmm. live in, 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 in the nodule. Mm. And the bacteria provide nutrients for the plant by mainly by fixing nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, getting nitrogen from the environment so that the, the plant can grow. Nitrogen's usually one of the, you know, um, Im- important uh, environmental uh, things that, that plants need to, to grow. And so, um, yeah, so these guys, it turns out, produce lots of really small molecules that they use to uh, communicate, lots of terpenes and little modified amino acids and things that they secrete out into the root nodule and help condition that nodule and communicate with other mm. bacteria and tell them that maybe this is a safe place to grow because we're all here together. (laughs) How beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) 
What a great partnership. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's also uh, uh, another thing that we are increasingly becoming aware of in uh, the medicinal context is the numbers of bacteria and the things that they're doing in the human gut. Uh, mm-hmm. It turns out there's a lot of chemistry happening there, a lot of um, actually identifiable secondary metabolism. Mm. Uh, and uh, we don't know all of the ways in which these bacteria are influencing their environment, and their environment is us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's been um, s- stories and evidence of, you know, uh, chemicals that make it into our bloodstream and probably our mm. brain. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it's, it's not always clear exactly how much the bacteria are controlling us. There, there are more Gosh. bacteria in, <laughs> usually in our mouths and certainly in our guts than there are human beings on the planet. So there, there oh are a gosh. lot of bacteria yeah. uh, out there. We are definitely outnumbered. <laughs> understanding, understanding all of that chemistry is, is pretty important to medicine too. Yeah. I mean, from the Salem witch trials, we have definitely learned a valuable (laughs) historical lesson. Uh, Know your secondary metabolites. One of the things that I did want to impress, too, is that secondary metabolism is based on primary metabolism. It's an evolution of primary metabolism. So a lot of the the genes and the DNA that's used for secondary metabolism, they are copies and uh, changes uh, that I don't know, that nature has made. So secondary metabolism is adaptation of primary metabolism. They're Mm. duplications of the genes um, and modifications that have been made to, that nature has made to uh, make different molecules that are related to primary metabolites and often use primary metabolites as building blocks to to produce novel molecules. And so we've got um, glycosides being made into sugar-containing compounds, and Mm. uh, terpenes come from isoprenoids and polyketides from the same stuff that um, fatty acids or lipids are made from, Mm. uh, and uh, amino acids built into peptides. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so um, historically it's been uh, a little bit difficult sometimes to identify uh, secondary meta- metabolism, just because it is similar to primary metabolism. So if you were, you know, synthes- uh, sequencing an organism for the first time, you'd never seen that organism before, you might not recognize that this weird fatty acid uh, synthase kind of system, like maybe this bacteria just makes fatty acids in a weird way, or, or maybe mm-hmm. it's a secondary metabolite. And so we've really only come into uh, good science for identifying secondary metabolism as we've sequenced more and more and more things. Mm, um, I see. Yeah, that technology has been really crucial. Yeah, yeah. The, the more uh, data you generate, the more knowledge you can generate. Mm-hmm. So that's why mm-hmm. we are still sequencing lots of stuff and why the JGI is uh, a key driver in, in some of the science. Mm. Hmm, very cool. Yeah, and I see a lot of these secondary compounds on this slide that you have displayed, um, and the the like glycosides and peptides. A lot of them are different kinds of antibiotics, right? Yeah, the, yeah. Antibiotics are, are, like I said, a really important driver for uh, discovery of of, of new medicines. Um, right. I, I hadn't realized that all these different kinds of, of secondary metabolites could also be antibiotics. And so yeah. it just feels like... I'm not sure what the statistic is nowadays, but uh, traditionally somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 
um, 60 to 70 percent of all of the medicines that we use are natural products or some mm. simple derivatives of, of natural products. Mm -hmm. Like such a large diversity can have similar effects, uh, I think is, is also really interesting because glycosides are shaped so differently from polyketides. I, at least, I mean, oh, yeah. I, haven't <laughs> I haven't looked at these structures in detail for a long time, but. Um, yeah, there are a lot of ways off. to put together uh, carbon molecules. And so <laughs> <laughs> chemistry uh, is pretty limitless. Mm -hmm. All right, so um, I thought we would spend a few minutes talking about uh, a brief history of drug discovery and, and natural products role in it. Um, mm -hmm. So let's see. Lay it on. All right. This is probably one of the most famous photographs in uh, microbiology. Oh, my gosh. Do you I, recognize it? I do okay, not. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel really bad. I feel like I should. That's okay. It's beautiful. It's a, it looks, it's like a, it looks like a, a, uh, a bunch of colonies on a petri dish. It's a black and white photo. Mm -hmm. um, it almost looks like the moon because <laughs> you have all <laughs> these like pockmarks. But yeah, what's going on? All right. So this is a photograph of the plate that uh, Alexander Fleming uh, oh. produced when he discovered, or uh, on the road to discovering mm -hmm. penicillin. Mm. So what, what we see here in this photograph is the, a photograph of a Petri dish. Um, and there's uh, lots of these little white spots around, and those are streptococcus bacteria, the mm -hmm. kind of bacteria that, you know, get, causes strep throat or other kinds of infections uh, in people that are pretty unpleasant. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the bottom of this photograph, or one corner of it, you see this big white blob. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of overexposed, but this, this white blob is um, a fungus called penicillium, uh, now called mm -hmm. penicillium. And mm. So this is a contaminant on his, his streptococcus plate. Whoa. And w what do you notice about the streptococcus spots around that? that oh, they're so much smaller. They're the much smaller. streptococcus mm -hmm. is losing. Yeah, and so that's because it turns out, it, so Fleming noticed this, and it turns out that penicillium is producing penicillin, which is inhibiting the growth of those streptococcus. And so this is one of the first discoveries of uh, antibiotic molecules. Um, after this, you know, Fleming went on the hunt for other similar bacteria, uh, fungi, and uh, uh, found them. And that's mm. why uh, penicillin has saved millions of lives since then. Mm. And so penicillium is a fungus. Um, but as people sort of started exploring these kinds of, uh, these kinds of organisms, they noticed uh, another somewhat similar group of organisms that I think... Um, are critically important to understanding the field of natural products. And so uh, we've got another slide here, and we're looking at a, a hand drawing of, um, uh, drawn by Salman Waxman, who is a microbiologist uh, who's uh -huh. working on these things in the, the very early 1900s. Uh, mm. And so he has drawn what he called actinomycetes. Mm. Um, so this was uh, some... Well, it turned out to be bacteria. He identified them as very small fungi, uh, and uh, this came from a growth uh, in uh, on a cow's cheek. Mm -hmm. uh, historically, before uh, antibiotics were common, 
it wasn't unusual to see sort of weird growths on livestock uh, <laughs> due to due to you know bacterial or fungal infections. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he he identified these things, and um, when uh, other organisms similar to say penicillium were were being explored, they mm. they recognized that these these kinds of bacteria were uh, producing uh, similar molecules, antibiotic molecules, and so. Uh, actinomycetes uh, mm-hmm. became a major source for natural products because they are easy to find. Uh, they grow in the soil. Mm-hmm. These, these are the same guys that produce geosmin. Oh, cool. And um, so w- we are uh, now looking at another photograph of a colony. This is a, a zoomed-in photo of a a uh, really blown up colony of uh, a streptomyces. It's wild. It kind of looks like a sock puppet of <laughs> a <laughs> of um of a yeti uh, with a large uh, purple lollipop attached to its mouth. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> so wow, it's like, that is yeah. yeah this is, that's. We'll that's, have to put a picture of this on uh, the website. I guess looking at these is kind of like looking at pictures of clouds or, or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what do you see? So, <laughs> right. so uh, these what kinds do you of see, bac- Dan? <laughs> <laughs> well, I see a streptomyces. So oh, okay. these are these are bacteria. <laughs> they grow up in these small um, colonies uh, that are kind of kind of leathery, uh, and oh, this looks yeah. this looks fuzzy uh, because those are all spores coming out of this thing. Mm. So these these guys um, spread themselves with spores, mm-hmm. uh, and the big purple blob that you see is um, basically uh, some cellular material that these guys are excreting out into their environment. These are growing on a plate, right? So it's not their normal natural environment. They usually Uh grow down within the soil. Right. And and um, that that purple blob is going to be chock full of uh, uh, compounds that probably kill other bacteria and and give them home, home field advantage. Okay. Wow, it's so weird how it's it's all concentrated in that blob uh, of death. I <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why these things were first kind of thought to be be fungi because they're they're growing in a way yeah. that's not really necessarily what most people think of when you think of bacteria. You think of bacteria as sort of these just single celled organisms, kind of all over. But uh, these kinds of bacteria grow in filaments and they mm. grow they grow together in clumps almost like you know um, like an organism they are, uh, they have specialized cells and uh, they the the ecology there is is really fascinating probably mm. a bit underexplored but mm. um, these are these are almost like you know like a mushroom or, or, or something that's that's actually organized in the way that they grow yeah okay so that that bubble is probably filled with uh, secondary <laughs> metabolites. Yep, that's right. Cool. Right. Oh, I would love to grow some stuff like that. It's just to have a little collection. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so penicillin became um, such a critically important drug, uh, mm-hmm. saving many, many millions of lives. Um, there was a drive to, to try to find more molecules like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became um, sort of a, a golden age of drug discovery, antibiotic discovery. So now we're, we're looking at, at a chart uh, that shows uh, different antibiotic molecules and their discoveries over a stretch from 1940 to 2000. Mm-hmm. And so you see from, from the 1940s into the 50s into the 60s, there was a huge 
growth, a huge explosion in new molecules discovered. Yeah. Um, this is a time when uh, all the big drug discovery companies, all the drug companies were um, creating libraries of, of soil bacteria. They kept and yeah, vancomycin, amphotericin, cephalosporin, tylosin, casugamycin, polyoxin. <laughs> Some of these I've definitely never heard of. Tetra- tetracycline, though, I've heard of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so all of these things were were, were discovered in what we ref- sort of refer to as the the golden age of, of drug discovery, um, mm-hmm. where uh, you could, you know, pick up a scoop of soil and grow mm-hmm. some bacteria, and there was a good chance you were going to find something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, that started decreasing around the 1970s, you can see on the chart, and um, then things got a little more more difficult. And so mm-hmm. the the rate of discovery of new molecules has declined ever since then. And there are lots of reasons for that. But uh, mm. some of it is, is just due to, so, mm. some of it's due to just finding the same things over and over again. Once you find the, the low hanging fruit, mm-hmm. uh, you don't, you know, necessarily find, you know, you don't care as much about finding really similar um, molecules that, you know, uh, might, might not be better. Right. Well, so at this point, you know, when you have um, all of these antibiotics being discovered, are are people are there still ailments or are there still infections that people are suffering and dying from? Is like, I think I my question is like, what drove people to discover more? Was it because were you already experiencing antibiotic resistance at that point? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. One of the earliest predictions about the use mm-hmm. of antibiotics is that eventually antibiotic resistance is going to set in. The more you use an antibiotic, the more a bacterium is exposed to it, mm-hmm. the greater the chance that that bacterium is going to evolve and develop some kind of resistance where it's not affected by the antibiotic anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there was always a strong driver to find new molecules with the expectation that resistance is going to be a problem. Got it. Um, many of these molecules, too, uh, hit the same target. And so... Um, uh, there's always a need to find new antibiotics that hit new targets because uh, mm-hmm. if you haven't, so so resistance comes about by usually by altering the target of the drug. Um, so for mm-hmm. example, a lot of antibiotics will target uh, specific parts of a cell wall. And so if you weaken a cell wall, then the bacteria will just like pop like a water balloon. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you make modifications to your cell wall, uh, then uh, the antibiotic you know, doesn't affect it anymore. And so all of those antibiotics mm. that were hitting the same place uh, are also suddenly useless. Ah, oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, those smart microbes. Okay. <laughs> I know they're not actually smart. That's anthropomorphizing them. <laughs> I'm Dan Udray, and you've been listening to Natural Podcast, a podcast produced by the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, a DOE Office of Science user facility located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You can find links to transcripts, more information on this episode, and our other episodes at naturalprodcast.com. Special thanks, as always, to my co-host, Allison Takamura. If you like Allison and you want to hear more science from her, check out her podcast, Genome Insider. She talks to lots of great scientists outside of secondary metabolism. And if you like what we're doing here, you'll probably enjoy Genome Insider too. So check it out. My intro and outro music are by Jazzar. 
please help spread the word by leaving a review of Natural Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you got the podcast. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or to me at Dan Udwary. That's D-A-N-U-D-W-A-R-Y. If you want to record and send us a question that we might play on air, email us at JGI-Coms. That's JGI-COMMS at LBL.gov. And because we're a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, DNA synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov user-programs. Thanks, and see you next time.